Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Lord, we give you thanks for this time. We thank you that you have spoken to us by your word. We do love you, Lord, because you have first loved us. You have shown us who you are through your word and even through 1 John. We pray that the words of John and the purpose of his letter would have its effect and its mark on our lives, that it would create in us a great confidence and assurance for us who believe that we have eternal life. Come speak to us wherever we are by your word. You know where we are spiritually, Holy Spirit. And so even as I speak now, let your spirit be speaking to our hearts, particularly and specifically to our own conditions. Enable my mouth to speak wisely and faithfully to your word and enable your people to hear with open hearts ready to receive all that you have for them. Hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we began looking at the book of First John together in the month of September and now at last we have arrived at sort of the last section and the last few verses of this book. Um, I hope that reading and studying and meditating and thinking and hearing First John read and preached has been uh, as good for you as it has been for me. I want you to know I have loved this book. Part of me is even sad that we're done with First John because of how deep and rich it has been for my own soul. I hope that as you've walked through this series and read through this book, hopefully many times over, that it has given you a clear vision for what authentic Christianity is, and what it means to be an authentic Christian, right? I hope that in this book and in this letter, as you've read John's word, you've gotten a vision for authentic Christianity and what it means to be an authentic Christian. If you remember back, those of you who are here, or if you're just jumping in with us, in our very first week when we opened 1 John 1 and the very first verse, we said, here's the reason John's writing. John is trying to expose counterfeit Christians so church-going, nominal folks who have all the looks and feels of a Christian but do not have the spiritual life of a Christian, John's trying to expose counterfeit Christianity and expose counterfeit Christians while at the same time giving confidence and assurance and certainty to authentic Christians. He's trying to give authentic Christians confidence and security and assurance that they are, in fact, genuine believers. And now when we come to the last passage and the last section of 1 John, it's as if John returns to that very central purpose that we began the book with. In fact, our passage today begins chapter 5, verse 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can read it from the screen. But our passage today begins with, again, a reminder of John's central purpose in this letter. Right? If there was a sentence a thesis statement, if you will, that summarizes what John is about and what this letter was about. It's 1 John 5, verse 13. Let me read it for you. You can hear these words. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me read that again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's John's thesis statement. If you wanted to summarize what is 1 John about, here it is. John is saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's, I write to you who believe in Jesus. 
And that's who authentic Christians are. Authentic Christians are people who believe in Jesus. And John is saying, I write to you authentic Christians who believe in Jesus that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his purpose. In fact, if you put together John's writings, remember John had written the gospel first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And John, his gospel, he gave also a thesis statement, and he said, I'm writing this so that you may believe in the Son of God. So his purpose is a little different. He said, I'm telling you this gospel and all this stuff of Jesus' life and bearing witness to him and testifying about him so that as you read this, you might believe in Jesus. And now he's saying in this letter, and you who essentially read my first book, I'm writing this letter to you who believe in Jesus now that you may know that you have life. So if you put the two together, John's saying, I write the gospel so that you may believe in Jesus and have life. And I write this letter to you who believe in Jesus that you may know that you have life. I write so that you can believe in Jesus. And now he's saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So here's what I want you to hear. If by any chance you missed it over these last four months of going week in and week out in 1 John, if you missed this, I need you to hear it today. God wants you to have certainty about your eternal life. God wants you to know that you have eternal life. God wants you to have confidence and certainty and assurance that you have eternal life. If you missed that over these four months, I probably should find another job, but I don't want you to miss it today, right? I want to make it as crystal clear as I possibly can. So here's how, how clear I know how to make it. If today were your last day, if you were going to die today and I asked you, what is going to happen to you when you die? If I were to ask you, will you go to heaven? Do you have eternal life? John has written this letter so that you could answer that question with absolute certainty, with an unwavering, sure confidence. John's written this letter for folks like us. If, if I were to ask you that question and your answer would be, I'm not sure. If your answer would be, gosh, I hope so. If your answer would be, I think so. If your answer would be, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a good person. I'm not a bad person. I think I would, maybe could have, sort of, fingers crossed, make it. If that's you, then, then I want you to hear this. Look, even if you're not religious, if you're here and you're just sort of checking out God and checking out Jesus or even just checking off the box of church for the week, if that's you, if there is a God, if there is eternal life, if there is more than these 60 or 70 years or these six or seven years, if there's more because tomorrow is certainly not guaranteed for us, we've seen that this week, if there is more to this, then don't you at least owe it yourself to answer these kinds of questions, right? It's amazing the kinds of things that we're sure of and the things that we leave sort of unsure. Some of us have given greater thought and serious weight 
to knowing exactly where we'll be 20 years after we retire, but have given very little thought to where we'll be 20 seconds after we die. Or if, if the scriptures are true, 20 billion years after we die. And in light of that, what is 20 years after you retire, if you're sure of that, but don't know where you'll be 20 billion years after you die? That's where Jesus says to people like us, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so John is inviting you today, and I think as providence would have it, this week is inviting you today to ask deeper questions like, am I sure? Do I know with absolute certainty and confidence if there is such a thing as God and such a thing as heaven and hell and such a thing as eternal life, I would imagine those wouldn't be the kinds of things you want to cross your fingers on and hope about. Those would be the kinds of things you want to be sure about. And John saying, you can be sure. You don't have to cross your fingers. Hear him say again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. John's written this so that you could have certainty and confidence about that question. In fact, that's what God desires for you. It's why God inspired John to write this. It's why God made sure that 1 John was in your Bible. John's hope is that an authentic Christian would be able to say, I know if my life were taken out today, I know that I will be with God. I know that I will be with him forever. I know as sure as I know anything, that I will be with him in heaven. Now, I want you to hear this. To have that kind of certainty is not presumption or arrogance. I can imagine if you're hearing this, that might sound that way. It's not presumption or arrogance. And I want you to also know, it, to, to not confuse, to say of the question, where will you be or will you go to heaven, to say I'm not sure is not humility. Don't think it humble to think, I don't know, I'm not sure. And don't think it arrogant to say, I am sure, and I do know. It's not arrogance, and it's not presumption, and here's why. If I were banking on being with God in heaven forever, based on me being good enough, right? I would say the majority of our culture and our world believes that if you're good enough, you'll get to heaven. And most people believe that's what Christianity says, and that's what the world religions say. And if I'm banking on getting to heaven and being with God because I'm good enough, whatever that means, if I'm banking on at the end of the day, somehow there's these scales and my good has to outweigh the bad, or somehow I have to compare myself to other people and say, at least I'm not like that or that, and I'm generally a good person. If I'm banking on whatever your metrics might be, if I'm banking on eternal life based on my merit or my performance or my work or my being good enough, and then I were to say to you, I am absolutely 100% sure I'm going to heaven, that is presumption. That's arrogance. It is very arrogant to think that you can be certain of heaven based on your performance or your merit or your goodness. But that is the furthest thing from what Christianity says. Christianity says that Christians are those who admit freely, I have nothing in me that is meriting. None of my performance is good enough to get to God. The only thing I have is that God was good enough to come to me. 
And Christianity says, listen, my confidence is not because I'm banking in myself. My confidence is I'm banking in Jesus. And Jesus was good enough. And his performance was good enough. And because he came for me, I bank on him. And if you're asking, do I have great confidence in him? I am absolutely certain and sure of him. I've got no confidence in myself or my merit or my worth, but I have every confidence in him. That's not presumption. That's not arrogance. That's gospel-driven certainty. And that's exactly what John wants for you. John wants you to be able to answer the question, do you have eternal life? Will you go to heaven? He wants you to be able to answer that question with absolute certainty. So I think if Pastor John were here, at least one of the questions he'd ask you at this point is that. Do you have eternal life? If your life were to come to an end today, will you be with God forever in heaven? And what I want you to ask yourself is, however you answer that, what's the basis for your answer? If you say yes, what's the basis for that? And if you say no, what's the basis for that? If right now, as I ask that question to you, you have doubt going, I'm, I'm really not sure, then perhaps you still think this whole thing works on a scale of merit and not, uh, maybe I haven't been good enough for God. And you're still not seeing the gospel, which is, listen, God in the end judges those who are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, John has already said in the chapter before, in the passage before, he said, those who have Christ have life, and those who don't, don't. And so allow John to press that question to your soul today. And now what I want you to hear is, as he comes to an end, as he's going to finish up chapter 5, he returns again to this very central thesis of his. I write these things to you who believe in the name of, son, of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. Now before he finishes this chapter and closes out this letter, there's more confidence that John wants to give us. Today is all about John wanting to instill in authentic believers confidence. And what John wants is not just for you to have confidence about being with God after you die. John also wants to give you confidence about being with God as you live. Hear that again. Before he's done with this section, John wants not just to give you confidence about being with God when you die. John wants to give you confidence about being with God and in his presence as you live. I want you to know that in the scriptures, this term eternal life is not just this future thing. Eternal life surely begins not just in the future, but it has this present reality. I want you to hear this. My eternal life began in 1990. You go, how does that happen? Well, eternal life is Jesus. And Jesus came into my heart and I repented of my sins and I trusted in Jesus. Then eternal life begins then. Now, heaven is for sure this future thing that we are waiting for and longing for, and thankfully he will come, but there's a sense in which all of that has broken into our reality now. And so John's interest is not just you being with God then, but you having confidence about being with God now. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. 
So I, I want you to look at that. What John is essentially doing is he's transitioning to talk about prayer. Hear that again so that you don't miss it. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything, what's that? That's praying. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, that's prayer, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So now here's the transition. John's finished talking about eternal life and now moves to prayer. And maybe you're wondering, what's the tie? How does he connect one to the other? And I think at least one of the answers is this, is that John is interested in you having confidence in being with God, not just when you die, but being with God and in his presence as you live. And what is that but prayer? John wants you to be confident of being with God and in his presence after you die, but he also wants you to be confident of being with God in his presence as you live. And that happens as we pray, right? When we pray, what we're doing is, I want you to think of the two. If heaven is, I get to be with God forever. And I want you to hear that. That's what heaven is. If you're interested in God because of all the perks that you think that come along with heaven, whatever you think heaven is of, of golden streets and big houses or whatever it is, I want you to know the real treasure of heaven is we get God. He's who we're after. And that's why heaven has already begun when God comes into my heart, because that's what we're after. And if heaven is, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we get to enter into that company of the Trinity. Well, we don't have to wait for that after we die, because in prayer, we enter into the company of the Trinity now. You think of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and every time we press into prayer, we're entering into that company. And if you think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit loving one another perfect without sin, and now I enter into that presence, there's a sense in which you can feel like you don't belong, like you're showing up to a party you weren't invited to. How is God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and I supposed to share company together? And it's precisely for that that John wants to give you confidence. You're not an unwanted guest. You have been invited. You can have confidence of being with God then and now through prayer. John's saying, look, when you pray, you can have this confidence that whatever we ask according to his will, we have it. What John is trying to give you is this boldness to pray. What John's trying to give you is almost a freedom of speech when it comes to prayer. You can go to God and you can say anything. As sure as you know you'll be with him in the end, you can be so sure of being with him now that in prayer you can say whatever you want. As long as we pray according to his will, we have what we ask for, John says, right? So there's this confidence John's trying to give us about prayer that whatever we ask, we have from him. And remember here, he says, as long as we pray according to his will, right? Prayer is not us trying to bend the will of God to our will. Prayer is us bending our will to God's will. Prayer is us saying, like Jesus said in Gethsemane, your will be done. Right? If your prayer life looks like trying to manipulate God and get him to do your will, that's the scripture's way of saying you're praying like pagans pray. I was reminded this week of a story from the Old Testament. There's a story where there's this prophet named Elijah, and there's these 400 prophets of a false god named Baal. And they have this sort of contest to see whose is the real God, and both of them begin to pray. But how do the pagans pray? 
If you read that story, essentially what happens is they hoot and holler for hours on end, and they figure if they string together just the right words, they can get this deity, whoever he is, to bend his will to theirs. And what happens? Nothing happens. And in contrast to that is the prayer of this prophet named Elijah, who prays in contrast to them not hours but seconds, who prays in contrast to them not many words but few words, but because he prays to the true God, immediately this prayer of his is answered. And John's point is, listen, we pray according to his will, and whatever we pray for, we have it. We, we have this confidence that before we even ask of it, we have it. And so John's inviting us to pray with this kind of certainty and this confidence that just as we know we'll be with him in the end, we can know that we can be with him now through prayer. And John transitions to not just talk about prayer generally, but he even gives for us a specific example of the kind of prayer that we can pray. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, so some of these verses are strung together and you struggle to figure out how does it all make sense. Here's the trajectory we've said so far. John's began by saying, I write these things to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. And that confidence of being with God then will give to us a confidence now that we can be with him in prayer. Whatever we ask of him according to his will, he will grant to us. And John now transitions to say, and rather than speaking of confident prayer generally, let me give you a specific example of the kind of prayer that we can pray. Right? So we're saying, okay, we can pray anything that we want. What should we pray? What should we pray about? Well, at least one thing that John wants us to know outright is that now as confident, authentic Christians who know that we have eternal life, who know that we can pray about anything, certainly that doesn't mean that we now turn inward and make all our prayers confident prayers about ourselves. So that now we go, I have God in the future and I have God now through prayer and whatever I pray according to his will he's going to do, so let me pray for my three favorite people of me, myself, and I. That's exactly what John wants to warn against. Remember how much John has labored to say, if you are an authentic Christian, part of that means that you will be a loving person who loves one another. John's labored to say part of being an authentic Christian means that you've got these eyes for those outside of yourself and that you will love one another. In fact, in John chapter 3, in 1 John 3, remember how he said, listen, we're to be the kind of people that if we see a brother in need, we in love will be moved to meet that need. Remember in chapter 3 how he said, if anyone sees a brother in need and has the world's goods and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then he says, beloved, let us not love in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. And that's John's way of saying, listen, if you're an authentic Christian, you're going to be moved in love towards other people. And if you see a brother in material need, you'll meet that need. So likewise, here, as he's wrapping up, he's saying, if you see a brother in spiritual need, you'll also be moved to meet that need. And how will you meet that need? Through confident prayer. Listen again to what he says. 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. So here's John's train of thought. I have eternal life. I'm sure of it. 
That confidence produces in me confident prayer. I can ask for anything. What am I going to ask for? I'm going to ask for the good of brothers and sisters around me. And John gives the example of saying, look, if you see a brother committing a sin, and maybe even now the Holy Spirit can bring to mind people and faces in your life. Think of a brother, a sister, a loved one who is in sin, who's not walking with the Lord. And maybe even the Holy Spirit can give you a godly concern for them. And you're concerned for this person who's not walking with the Lord, who's committing this sin, who's not right with God. And as the Holy Spirit in love produces this concern for you, you ask, what can I do? What should I do? And John says, pray. Pray with confidence. If you see a brother committing a sin, ask God and God will give him life. And so ask the Lord, even now as you think of this person, ask God, give this person life, restore them back, bring them to life in you. Now there is one qualification that John makes. We can ask for anything and we can ask for it with great confidence knowing that we have it, but there's a qualification that he makes. Look again at verses 16 and hear it. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life. Now comes the qualification to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So there's some work we have to do even with that. John's just said, pray, confident prayers, ask God to restore these people to life, and then he makes a qualification. That is, God will bring back to life those that do not sin, sins that lead to death. So now you've got to ask, what is that? What is the sin that leads to death? Now, John doesn't explicitly name any sins here, so we have some studying to do. And what we have to do is we have to bring together Scripture and say, okay, how does Scripture interpret Scripture? How does one part of the Bible help us understand another part of the Bible? And I think it's right and fitting to understand it this way, that the sin that leads to death is the sin that will not seek Jesus for forgiveness. The sin that leads to death is the sin that will not turn to Jesus. Or to put it the other way, the sin that leads to death is the sin that rejects Jesus. Let me give you an example that that perhaps can help. If I said, I have here a pill that can cure any disease, it doesn't matter what the disease is, it doesn't matter if it's AIDS or the common cold or cancer or whatever it might be, I have a pill here that can cure any person of any disease. The only person this pill cannot cure is the person who will not take this pill. That makes sense, right? If I said, I have this pill that can cure any person of any disease, the only sick person this pill cannot cure is the one who will not take this pill. At that point, you realize that whether a sick person lives or dies doesn't depend anymore on the magnitude of their disease, but rather on the disposition of their heart or their willingness or unwillingness to take this pill. So likewise, here John is saying, in the same way, Any sinner who commits any sin can be forgiven. The only sinner who commits the sin that cannot be forgiven is the one who will not turn to Jesus for forgiveness. 
is the one who will not come to Jesus for the cure. Even as a sick patient will die in their sickness for not taking this cure. So likewise, John is saying, anyone who does not turn to Jesus sins a sin that leads to death. What John's saying is, look, if this person persists in ongoing, unrepentant, habitual, Jesus-rejecting sin, then they sin a sin that leads to death. And before John ends on that happy note, he makes sure to add a few more words, which is, listen, don't forget everything I've said, which is if you are an authentic Christian, you're not going to sin the sin that leads to death. If you're an authentic Christian, let me remind you, you will not persist in ongoing, habitual, unrepentant, Jesus-rejecting sin. Why is that? He ends by telling us. Look at 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's stop there for a second. He's saying, look, if you're an authentic Christian, you're not going to persist in this kind of Jesus-rejecting death sin. And the reason you're not going to do that, verse 18, is because we've been born of God, and we've labored over that many times. Remember, we've said throughout these letters and throughout these chapters that John has told us we've now been born of God. We have his nature. We've used even the Greek graphic word of sperma. God put his sperma in us, his seed in us, his spirit in us. He changed our spiritual DNA. We look now like God and like his son, Jesus Christ. We cannot look anymore like the devil because he put a new nature in us. And so because we've been born of God, we cannot keep on sinning. And now John also says, and the other reason why you will not persist in ongoing, habitual, Jesus-rejecting sin is because of this. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Who's that? He just said, we will not keep on sinning because we've been born of God. And then he says, and he who was born of God protects us. Who's the one born of God? The language is so similar, you almost can't tell if it's us or someone else. And then, to save you the time, for the sake of time, I'll tell you, it, the one born of God, the one begotten of God is Jesus. And he uses the language so close as to identify us so closely with Christ. And he's saying, the one born of God, Jesus, the begotten one of God, the one that we remember born of God in this season, is the one who protects us and protects us in such a way that Satan himself can't even touch us. The reason we will not be dragged by temptation into habitual, Jesus-rejecting, persistent sin is because we've been born of God and have a new nature and because Jesus, the one born of God, protects us so much so that the evil one can't, John says, even touch us. Hear that? Now, Satan can surely tempt us. He can surely afflict us. He can surely attack us. He can surely hurt us. He can surely seek to devour us. But John's saying, in the end, he can't touch you. He can't touch us because we belong now to Jesus. Verse 20 tells us and reminds us, once we belonged, or verse 19, once we belonged to the world, and, and John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So I want you to think of your spiritual condition. You once belonged to the world, and the world 
lies, it says, in the power of the evil one. So it's, it's almost this graphic picture of the whole world lying like an infant in Satan's arms. He cradled the whole world, and that's where you once were. You once were a part of this world, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But now, because of Jesus' grace, through repentance and faith, you've been snatched from the world, and you now belong to Jesus. And now, he's saying, and Jesus' grip on you is stronger than Satan's pull on you. Jesus' ability to keep you is stronger than Satan's ability to take you. What great good news. This is all dependent not on you grabbing hold of Jesus, but on Jesus holding you. And because he holds you tightly, no matter how hard Satan tugs, he cannot touch you. He cannot ruin you. He cannot take you in the end because we are now in him. We were once in the power of the evil one. But now, verse 20, we are in him and he is the true God and he is Jesus Christ. John ends this whole letter basically where he begins, which is he wants to remind you again just about Jesus. Let me read you how John began this letter so that you can hear it and hear about Jesus once more at the end. John 1 verses 1 to 4 said this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John wants to end this letter just like he began, which is, listen, I'm writing this to tell you about Jesus. And five chapters later, he wants to end by saying, you know why you can have confidence about your eternal life? You know why you can have confidence in this life, in your prayers? You know why you can have confidence that in the end, Satan can't touch you? It's all because of Jesus, because you've come to know him. Look at what he says at the end, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And he ends by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So he wants to end by saying, you've come to know Jesus. And if you've come to know Jesus, which I've labored over five chapters to tell you, then you can know that you have eternal life. And if you know that you have eternal life, you can have confidence that you can know that you can be with God even in this life. And as you come to God in that confidence in your prayer life, you can ask anything according to his will, and he will do it for you. And do not use all those prayers only on self, but in love, intercede for brothers and sisters who are committing sins. But there is sin that leads to death, Jesus rejecting sin. But authentic Christians, but beloved, you will not keep on sinning because you have been born of God. And the one born of God protects you, and the evil one cannot touch you. And because you've come to know Jesus, who is the true God and is the only God, John ends his letter by saying, and so keep yourself from idols. We'll come to that in a few weeks and talk a little bit more about it. But John ends by saying, listen, if I've just told you who the true God is, then make sure you keep yourself from all the other false gods. 
Keep yourself from anything and everything that would take you away from Jesus. Because you have Jesus, you can have confidence in this life and in the life to come. So hopefully over five chapters of John's letter, you've come to see what authentic Christianity is. And my prayer for you is that John has moved you, in fact, to be an authentic Christian. Let's pray. Our Lord, we give you thanks for all that is ours in Christ Jesus, your Son. We thank you that for our sake you sent him into the world, that he died for our sins, rose again, and that by trusting in him we might have eternal life. And this morning we even thank you that it is your desire that we might know that we have eternal life. I pray that you would move us towards certainty and confidence and assurance And all of this would be born not because we've been good enough, we have not, but because Jesus was good enough for us. And the death we deserve to die, Jesus died for us. And the life we want, we now have in him. If we have the Son of God, John says, we have eternal life. If we don't, we don't have life. So grant to all who have heard life today. We pray even in this room, if there is a brother or sister committing a sin that does not lead to death, that we would ask of you even now, give such a person life. Restore them to life. Bring them back to their senses and bring them to you. And we know that the only reason we will not persist in Jesus rejecting sin is because we've been born of God through no effort of our own. And because Jesus, who was born of God, now protects us so that Satan cannot even touch us. All of this depends on your strong hands, not our weak ones, and so we're thankful. Speak to us a good word. We come to you in Christ's name. Amen.